Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, we're joined by Mark Palmeropoulos. He was the former CIA Director of European Operations, and he is the author of a new book, which you should all go out and buy after listening to this program, called Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. One of the reasons, though, I wanted to have Mark on, he's been a, a very valuable source for me in writing my own GRU book and in sort of understanding Russian intelligence and active measures. But you may have seen him uh, in the media outside of his now very um, full book tour because he has suffered, possibly at the hands of Russian agents, probably at the hands of Russian agents. I'll let him tell the story in, in greater detail, but, but broadly, he was one of the victims of the uh, so-called directed energy uh, attacks that have been befalling a bunch of American diplomats and intelligence officers all over the world, from Havana to Moscow, where he was afflicted to uh, now even rumors or allegations that it's it's come to Washington, D.C. And I wanted him to kind of talk about the experience of recovering from these attacks. I mean, it, it doesn't really do justice reading about them in the New York Times to understand the kind of long-term trauma that those who have, who have been hit with these things experience. So Mark, it's, it's great to have you on. If we could just sort of open up because, uh, you know, I was sort of amazed. I think Julia Yaffe wrote a really good profile of you in, what was it, Esquire? And I, I hadn't- GQ. GQ, yeah. sorry. Yeah. And, and you and I had been talking, but I didn't know that you were you were hit with this thing. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience? I mean, this happened in Moscow when, when you were stationed? So, you know, at the time I was the, uh, then the Deputy Chief of Clandestine Operations over in the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center. So my job was, you know, entailed everything from, you know, what, what can you say, from Dublin to the far time zones of Russia. So it was a huge responsibility but I was a career Middle Eastern operations officer. And so, and they tapped me in 2016 to do this job because we wanted to, this was after the, the you know, election interference with, with the Russians did to us. So they wanted to kind of take a whole bunch of us Near East Division and counterterrorism off center officers at CIA and kind of put us on the Russia account to kind of have that same ethos. And so with that in mind, you know, and I, and I was not a Russia expert, so I needed to go take a trip to Moscow, St. Petersburg. So in December of 2017, you know, I embarked on a 10 day visit really to, to see our, our ambassador out there at the time, Ambassador Huntsman, who's a, you know, a long time, you know, kind of foreign policy figure in the U.S. government, who's ambassador in Beijing, now ambassador in Moscow, who's the former governor of Utah. You know, I also was frankly going to meet with Russian government officials as well, which is just something that that we do. You know, early on the trip, the second night, and I'm staying at a, you know, a five-star hotel um, within a couple blocks of the U.S. Embassy, you know, I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this incredible case of uh, a vertigo, you know, tinnitus ringing in my ears, splitting headache. And that kind of started this incredible medical journey that, you know, continues to this day. I still have a headache three years later. The, my headache has never gone away. Is there any sort of clarity about what the technology is that's doing this to so many American officials and, and spies? I mean, is it, you know, there's some kind of microwave technology? I mean, what, what have you learned in the three years of your recuperation? It's a, it's a complicated issue. So let me start off with, there's been, you know, much, uh, you know, written about and discussed and, you know, a lot of kind of documentary evidence of what happened to our officials in Havana, Cuba in 2016. And so, you know, that clearly there was, there's multiple officials who 30 or 40 who've been really afflicted. And I know some of them and they're permanently disabled and it's a tragic case. Yeah. So, but now fast forward then in 2000, you know, late 2017, I'm in Moscow and I come back from there, the, the doctors, the CIA's Office of Medical Services first, you know, they take a look at me and they say, look, you know, you don't look really like those officers. You know, while I had vertigo and I had tinnitus, you know, many of them were kind of awakened to a start. They heard sounds. And this rudimentary protocol that they put me through, Office of Medical Services basically said, 
you don't look consistent. And, and so, you know, that kind of started kind of this fight I had with the agency's medical staff, but really things got more serious. And ultimately I had to retire. And the health journey I went on between December 17 and when I retired in July 19, I basically almost stopped going to work. I was in such distress. But as I was retiring, other agency officers started getting afflicted with the same thing that I did not, then they did not look exactly like what happened to the officers in Cuba. And so, and what has happened over time is that these officers all had one thing in common that they all worked on Russian operations. So then you start building, you know, you start having a theory right. that the Russians were behind it. And then you take a look at historical data, you know, that we know the Russians had directed energy weapons uh, and you kind of, you know, you start, you start kind of shaking your head and, and wondering what's going on. And, and frankly, I'm not, you know, I don't have, I'm not read in anymore. Obviously I've been at the intelligence community since July of 19. And so, so all I will say is that, you know, there's a lot of people working on this and there's not a single person I know at CIA and I, on the operational side who doesn't believe that the Russians are behind this. Yeah. And I mean, if it, if it were the Russians behind this, then it would most likely be because it's, it's just kind of a military grade device or, or weapon system. It would be probably the GRU wielding them as opposed to, say, the FSB or the SVR. You know, the SVR is an external organization. I don't think it would be them. Yeah. Who's doing it? You know, I, you know, I leave it to others. The, the one point that's worth discussing, and a lot of people have questioned, do they think, why would the Russians take this step? But take a look at what Vladimir Putin has done in the last several years. And I think you can easily say that, you know, they violated basically every diplomatic norm, whether it's election interference, assassinating distance abroad. For God's sakes, they're, you know, they committed war crimes in Syria, the Russian Air Force, you know, what they've done there. So ultimately, I think we can discount the notion that the Russians wouldn't do this. It's just a question of, of, frankly, getting to the bottom of it. And the new administration has been very good. CI Director Bill Burns, you know, in his, confirm, in his testimony, confirmation hearings really pledged, uh, first of all, that he believed it, but second of all, that he wanted to get to the bottom of it. And I think they're putting a lot of resources. So we're going to find out. One of the interesting things, you know, Michael, for you as kind of a student on foreign policy and intelligence, this is for a podcast where you bring together really kind of renowned Russia experts. What do we do as the U.S. government if we get conclusive proof it's the Russians? I mean, this is an act of war on U.S. personnel. And so there's a huge kind of, you know, $60,000 question, you know, hanging over the administration is when we find out who did this, what are they going to do? Well, I wanted to ask you, I mean, as, as someone who no doubt observed this uh, Biden-Putin summit and some of the optics going into it, I mean, the, the, the idea that, that Washington is seeking a, a, quote, stable and predictable relationship with Russia, this is foreign policy speak. I mean, to, to my mind, we do have a predictable relationship with Russia. We say we want to at least get on as a, as a sort of equal partner and they say, thank you very much, and then fuck us over in some way, or in, in this instance, I mean, attack American uh, officials abroad. I mean, you say that internally, and, and certainly as embodied by Burns, who I know his appointment you you were supportive of, there's a desire to get to the bottom of it. So I don't have a doubt that America will eventually get to the bottom of who done it and perhaps even why. The question though is, will this ever be publicly disclosed, right? So let me tell you that there's, how can I say it? There's a couple of heroes involved in this story. You know, first and foremost, it's the victims. And so I've, I've been fortunate to meet a whole bunch of obviously CIA officers that I knew, but more, you know, more importantly, a lot of State Department officers who, Foreign Service officers who've really been badly afflicted. And so, Michael, you and I know each other. I can go out to a restaurant with you. You wouldn't know that I have a headache that, that has never gone away. I've kind of learned to deal with this, you know, crippling pain, but I just, I cope with it. Yeah. The others I know are have, have trouble walking. Um, they, they can't drive. I mean, they're on permanent disability. So those are the true heroes. But let me tell you that you know, there's two others that, you know, kind of two other classes of, of folks to, to, to talk about. One is is the media. You know, it's funny, this is coming from a former CIA official, but but, you know, the media has been extraordinary in keeping this story alive. 
as we're talking here today. And really, you know, of course, starting with when, when Julia Yaffe told my story in GQ, and I chose her specifically because she was a, you know, a longtime expert on Russia, speaks fluent Russian, is Russian. She was born there. And she's a, a great writer. And so I thought she would be able to tell my story well. And, and, and what she did, she got across that, you know, first of all, that I'm not nuts. Number two, that I have no financial gain in this. And really, it was just a story of kind of my suffering and my battle to, to try to get health care. Right. And then the last group to really laud is, is the Hill. And again, coming from a former CIA officer, look at me, I'm talking about the media and Capitol Hill. Good Lord. <laughs> but, you know, senators and congressmen across the aisle have been extraordinary in this issue. And so I've met with the individual senators and House members and their staffs, everyone from the, the right and the left. And they are really united in trying to trying to get support for, for those who have been injured. So it's a it's pretty remarkable. It might be the only thing that the staffs of, you know, Adam Schiff and Devin Nunes actually get along on, on this issue. Right. In a way, this is sort of like the perfectly grim weapon to use against Americans, because, you know, unlike the with the so-called bounty story from Afghanistan, which we've also covered extensively on the show, this doesn't kill you, but it takes you out of operation. Right. I mean, and, and then you have this lifelong debilitating illness, which nobody can kind of quite put their finger on how to treat or what to do with. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I see this as, as exactly in keeping with the kind of escalation we've come to expect from Putin and his regime. Right. And, and this is, I mean, what, you know, this, this is going to sound terrible as I, this has kind of, you know, certainly been a seminal you know, time in my life, but what a brilliant weapon. Yeah. It's invisible. It, the attribution it has, has proven to be very difficult and it's designed to take someone off the ball field, off the playing field. Yeah. And so it's not killing anyone. And so really it is, a, it is pretty devious or insidious or however you want to talk about, you know, describe it. it. It has been so effective. And, and Michael, here's the other thing too. There is, um, you know, I, I hesitate to say this because this, you know, this would give great comfort and joy to the Russians, but this has caused a lot of consternation within the U.S. national security establishment, particularly among those who serve overseas. Right. So when I went to Afghanistan and Iraq and I, you know, and I spent almost three years in kind of really nasty places, I knew there was extreme physical danger, whether I was briefed, whether I, you know, it was obvious. I knew there was a CT threat from, you know, multiple different entities. This is a little different. And one other thing to note is this is actually happening in locations which are not war zones. Right. And the final point is family members. I, I have not really talked about this much, but family members have been affected too. So it's not only foreign service officers or intelligence officers, it's their, it's their spouses, it's their kids. You were in a hotel room. I think there, there was an instance where, yeah, as you mentioned, a, a child of a diplomat was in a car and started vomiting and having these sort of kind of convulsive reactions. I mean, it's it clear enough that, that whoever's doing this, you know, is surveilling the targets for a time before, right, uh, as you would do. But then where are they launching this thing from? I mean, I, these directed energy systems, how big are they? I mean, this is, is this like a, a portable device, like, like a remote control? Or is this-, this is where I think that there has been, you know, there hasn't been enough reporting. It's very easy to say that, oh, this would have to be some enormous device that, you know, but actually, if you take a look at the commercial sector now, there's, I mean, there's a US company, I know of it. It's a great company. It does great work. It's called Epirus. Yeah. They've developed anti-drone technology and they're selling this to the, the you know, the US government. And in essence, is it can be on the back of a truck, Yeah. but it knocks drones out of the sky, you know, small drones with a directed energy weapon. So the idea that this is, look, it's 2021. So, you know, this technology certainly has existed and it exists now. What it looks like, I would imagine, and I have no idea. Again, I'm not written into anything. I would imagine we're certainly trying our best to obtain one of these devices. I mean, that's usually what we do yeah. as, a, as the U.S. government. 
So let's let's sort of use this as a segue into your book about leadership. First of all, the fact that you were able to write a book, given your condition, yeah. is is pretty remarkable, I would say. I mean, you and I first became friendly or got to know each other at the Vienna Inn, your favorite uh, <laughs> your favorite hangout in, in your hometown of, or your now town of Vienna, Virginia, uh, over a very boozy four-hour lunch. And yeah, I mean, I had no idea you were going through any of this, but you were talking about the process of writing a book. I'm in the midst of writing a book. I mean, first of all, tell us a little bit about the book, what drove you to, to do it, and what you hope, what lessons you hope um, have been imparted in it. No, you know this, and it's it's a it's a great segue because actually the process of writing the book was a really cathartic experience for me. First of all, you know what what is my bandwidth now? So just as as you know, after I got injured in December 2017, I have about two or three hours a day where I can focus. Right, and I can go have a beer with you, like against the advice of my doctors. That's not focusing. We can sit at the VI Vienna in for a couple of hours, but I'm talking about focusing like in an office setting. So writing a book actually, and I know you know you're an author as well. It's a process where where I I would spend two or three hours every morning, and then I'm done. But that's okay because just the way it works for me creatively, and I think other authors too, is that you know that's that's sufficient. Yeah. And so it was a cathartic experience because I was able to still do something. It gives you you know a sense of purpose. But ultimately, look, I spent more than two, you know two decades in at the agency, and and I learned you know a lot about leadership really from adversity and a ton of failure. And so by the end of my career, I was a great leader. Not necessarily in the beginning of my career. You know, I never got an MBA. You know, our leadership training at CIA is lousy. It's not like the military where you go. You know, if you if you retire after 20 years, you'll have spent two full years uh, in leadership training. But ultimately, you know, I got my kick, my teeth kicked in and I learned a lot about it. So the book really talks about, you know, learning from adversity and failure, which I think makes it uh, kind of interesting. But ultimately, this is what I found at the end of my career, which I, this is why I decided to write this book is that, and it's, what, it's based on the, the, the title, Clarity and Crisis. And it means that, you know, I was comfortable in the gray. Mm. When there was times of ambiguity, when you have a lack of situational awareness, that's where I was really calm. And then I embraced that. And so, you know, you find what, you know, what do you call it? Calm in the chaos. And it's, it sounds a little strange, but that was my happy place. So, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I then sort of dissected, you know, nine principles that led me as I led these teams to get to a place where the whole unit kind of had that sense of ethos that we were there, there's a fire and, and you want to raise your hand, you know, you're going to run into that fire. I decided to write a book on it. And, you know, it's, it's a great story because I was actually my, I was in Brooklyn, you know, in, in your neck of the woods mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And I, and I, you know, my stepbrother was getting married, uh, remarried. And I ran into an old high school friend who's like this super agent out in LA. And I told him about the idea for the book. And he's like, Hey, I have some friends at, at William Morris Endeavor, Endeavor, WME on Madison Avenue. And I went, and we started talking and, and everyone kind of kind of seized on this idea because I always make this joke that, you know, if you're a Navy SEAL, you, you get your book deal and buds training and all my SEAL friends get pissed at me. But <laughs> there's not a lot of agency guys who've written books on leadership. In fact, really none. Or maybe I, maybe there are. But and so I just thought it would be interesting. And I'm not I'm not pounding my chest. Right. It's a lot about how, you know, learning from humility and failure. And I, and I think it's really going to resonate. You know, so far, the reviews have been great. It's getting a lot of attention. So I'm, I'm super excited. And it's kind of given me you know, a sense of purpose now is I still struggle with, you know, the headaches that haven't gone away. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you have a, obviously a, a career in intelligence, but, but before that you were in the military too, which does seem to be kind of, I never, no, I actually, Michael, I never served in the military. You never served in the military. No, nope. oh. that's the only job I ever had. I came right out of Cornell university and got, got recruited right into the CIA. And so I am uniquely qualified to do nothing other, other than be an intelligence officer or write. And that's why this, you know, the, this kind of author gig that I'm doing now. And I also write, you know, I write a weekly column on intelligence for the Washington Examiner, and I do a lot of other writing here and there, but I've just fallen in love with this now. And I think it's just, a, it's a, you know, it's become a passion. So I have a, I, I kind of have a, 
a sense of purpose as I still, again, you know, have, you know, have to struggle with these headaches every day. Yeah. I mean, you know, it seems that, that a lot of people who have come out of the agency in recent years have been far more outspoken than their predecessors. I mean, I think in a good way, because, you know, you, you tend to take people who have that kind of ex- experience with more seriously and, and you, you credit them with more authority to know what they're talking about, particularly on the Russia front. I mean, you know, when I started covering this subject, it was not easy to get sort of like at least wink and a nudge confirmation that I was on the right track from people who are in a position to know far better than I. I mean, it's, it's a lot of guesswork and theorizing and speculation. But, you know, you've got this sort of cadre of people yourself, John Seifer, Stephen Hall, yep. who have been very, very... But here, here's what happened with me. Yeah. This was very deliberate. So I was retiring. I, I felt like crap. I had my headaches. And I went to a couple of people. Number one, I went to, went to Mike Morell, who's the former uh, deputy director and acting director. And, and basically what I said to him is, that I, you know, I was obviously we have to be apolitical, but... When I retired, I was like, look, I just lived through two years of the Trump administration. It is insane what happened in terms of, you know, you know, his President Trump's, you know, rejecting the intelligence community's finding on Russian interference and just this kind of incredible turn that one of our political parties has made against the IC. And I was really bothered by it. And I asked him, I said, hey, do you think it would be okay for me to speak out on this? And I called John Cipher as well and Dan Hoffman and some other folks, you know, and, and I said, I, you know, I think I, I can really offer something interesting, a unique view, because I was there for two years, but it bothered me so much. So that's how it started. And look, I was very, you know, I, you know I'm a, how can I say this? You know, CIE, we are apolitical, but but truth be told, I can talk about it now. I voted Democratic in the past and I voted Republican in the past. Right. I mean, I was an operations officer for the CIA, so I'm no lefty. Right. <laughs> but, but I was, I, I mean, come on, you know, I was, I was in counterterrorism. So you know, like the idea that the embra- the left would ever embrace me is a little bit off if you ever got a, got to know what I've done in the past. Right. That said, I was so disturbed by by you know what was going on in the Trump administration, I became very vocal in my retirement about it. And I think that it's, it was it offered really a unique perspective for a couple of reasons, but mainly because the CIA, you know, we project forward. We are a we were a outward facing organization. We live overseas. And one of the things that a lot of us were able to make the comparison is that things that were happening in the United States you know, kind of gave us a little PTSD, like, hold on a second, we saw all this stuff happen in autocracies of the third world. And I think the warnings that we put forward were helpful. You know, look, I would never say America, you know, and, and there's there's friends of mine on the right were like, hey, you know, pipe down a little bit. But I wasn't the one saying that we look like Saddam's Iraq. I mean, that's silly. Right. But ultimately, I think we provided a, a good service in, in a warning um, on what was going on. And, you know, some people were, were certainly critical. I know that internally in the agency, there was certainly on our seventh floor, Back in the previous administration, they weren't always thrilled with me, but I still think we have to call it like we like like we saw it. I loved writing tweets about, and, and I do this every other day. It seemed like the whole Trump administration. It would be, hey, this is what a foreign intel officer would be reporting right now on what's happening in Washington, right? Because that's what I did overseas, and it wasn't so pretty. No, I, you know, and it's it's funny too because you know we, we're we're kind of in this period of like initial reassessment of not just the Trump era but how it had been reported and talked about, and you know, look, a lot of people got ahead of their skis or, or dare I even say a little too histrionic in in their reaction to things. But to my mind, and this comes comes very clear to me in doing the research for the book, and whenever you study intelligence, as you know, I mean, it can take decades for the full picture to come into focus, right? I mean, because you're dealing with systems of classification of programs that we don't even know they exist. What sort of struck me the most coming, especially coming off of the anticlimax of the Mueller report, and then the slightly more climactic, but 
media berry disclosures in the Senate subcommittee reports and, you know, even the ODNI, which came out under Biden, there does seem to have been something to this idea that there was an attempt, certainly by the Russian government and its cutouts, whether in the sort of oligarchic classes or whatever, European academia in the case of Joseph Mishood, to cultivate and to make relationships with members of the Trump campaign, the extent to which we still don't know, I read Mueller not as a counterintelligence document, but as a sort of legal conspiracy and obstruction of justice document, right? CI, as you know, I mean, because this is sort of your bread and butter, entails something a, bit, a little bit different, a lot of it different, in fact. Your perspective, and obviously, you know, you can't give away any kind of, you know, trade secrets here. This comes back to what I was saying about the outspokenness of, of recent retirees from the agency, D despite crazy paranoiacs in the press who think that there's a so-called deep state and that the CIA and the FBI were in league to try and take down a president and all that. It's actually very rare for recently retired intelligence officers to be kind of almost palpably nervous and sort of distraught about what they see taking place in the political. That's, that's what happened. So, and I've been very outspoken on this. I've written on this. You know, there was a sense of absolute fear. So imagine if you're in my position as the deputy chief of operation of the European Eurasia Mission Center, and this has been widely poured in the, in the press, so I can talk about it. And, and we get, we get wind that Michael Flynn and Jared Kushner want to use the Russian embassy's secure communications as a conduit to the GRU. Yeah. The only thing you can react to that is what the fuck. Right. And, and I mean that seriously. You know, your the hair goes up. That happened. And the fact that that happened and somehow has still been excused is remarkable to me. Now, you can say they were naive, you know, okay, sort of, not really. Michael Flynn is, is a career intelligence officer, but so much of that occurred. And so the alarm bells that were ringing at FBI headquarters at, in CIA are absolutely justified. This has nothing to do with the, you know, with the legal case with the Mueller report. It's like I, I would make the comparison of Al Qaeda embedding themselves in the National Security Council. It's just, you know, it was insane that, you know, as we we're just watching this all occur. And so the, the, the notion of a deep state is, is patently ridiculous. You know, I've talked about it all the time. I joke about it on Twitter that, you know, John Seifer and I, you know, run the deep state from the VNN. But, you know, come on, there's no counterintelligence professionals, no intelligence professionals, as we're receiving and seeing this reporting, who would not be concerned. This is not the CIA's purview. It's the FBI's purview to, to take a look at this. But of course, you're, you're worried about this. I mean, it I go back a little bit further than that. I mean, Mike Flynn, when he was director of Defense Intelligence Agency, being invited into GRU headquarters, which is unprecedented for the Russians and unprecedented for any American intelligence officer to essentially walk into the lion's den like that and be, be greeted not as prey, but as sort of, a, you know, someone on their side. And then, you know, he comes out with his book about fighting radical Islam, by which he means right. just Sunni Jihad, but Shia, it's Shia incarnation as represented and embodied by the Islam. Look, I think, Michael, you know, ultimately, at, at the end of the day, there's nothing that the intelligence community has anything to apologize for. Yeah. You know, there is some kind of legitimate concern about the FISA process in terms of FBI, and that has nothing to do with CIA. So I, you know, I, I'm just like anyone else. I look at that from afar. But in terms of the intelligence community, I will defend that, you know, everything that we did. The intelligence community assessment that was put together that detailed Russian election interference is an absolutely authoritative doc, uh, document signed off by 17 members of the intelligence community. And, you know, it stands the test of time. And Congress has ratified that. I think one of the things that was, as history is going to show, which was a, a staggering mistake, is to as this was presented to uh, to President Trump, 
by uh, you know former director Brennan and then James Comey, they attached as an annex in the back the Steele dossier, which had nothing to do with the ICA. The intelligence community assessment didn't look at that, didn't care about it. It was a turd sitting out there. And why in God's name did they decide to present this all together is something that I think will come down as a historic mistake because so many people on the right then conflate the two together. The intelligence community assessment, which detailed, you know, with excruciating sourcing, what the Russians did in 2016, you know, is going to stand the test of time as, as great analysis and great collection. Yeah. I mean, and also the, the level of detail that's come to light about other things. I mean, you know, I go back to the GRU bounty story simply because I actually think this is a case of the media initially getting it right. And then based on sort of political calculation or messaging coming from the White House, or in the case of the Biden administration, a lack of sanctions, the media then trying to distort what it had got right. Right. So in other words, like Charlie Savage, the New York Times reported very in minute detail, a claim that came out of the intelligence community that the GRU and not just any GRU unit, but unit 29155, which is known for assassination, sabotage, suborning the Taliban and other Islamist insurgencies in Afghanistan to kill U.S. and U.K. forces. And they, they said this came not just from interrogations, but from financial intercepts, you know, other sourcing, which if you kind of read between the lines, suggests that, <laughs> that the United States is running assets inside the GRU, right, that are feeding them this stuff. And yet, again, it, it's, it's one of these sort of moments like, well, you know, Donald Trump wasn't frog marched out of the Oval Office in handcuffs by Bob Mueller himself. Therefore, there's no there there to these allegations. Well, no, that's that's again, that's not how intelligence works. So I'm of a mind that, you know, we, we're now in this state of, you know, the, the kind of culture war between the left and the right in this country is very grievously impinging upon the, the, the media's ability to simply communicate how intelligence gathering and intelligence and, and uh, assessments are done, right? I mean, as you pointed out earlier, this is not meant to be a politicized thing, you know? No, and the, the bounty stories is, first of all, I believe it. I think it has been, there's been consistently reported that there was, and, and, I, and I say I believe it, I was not in government at the time. So this is not based on anything other than my experience. But the idea that there's there's differing assessments between medium and low confidence on something like this, between CIA and NSA, absolutely correct, happens all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. And I, I still think that, and, and the idea that this, you know, you know, made it into, you know, the, the PDB and other places, again, really important because nothing goes in the PDB that is not deemed really worthy. So ultimately, I see it, the, the story has been relatively consistent. Some of the things I don't understand is the U.S. military is kind of discounting this. That was kind of curious to me. But, you know, ultimately, I think we're going to get to the bottom of it eventually, you know, what has been an extraordinary development over the last couple of years, which is the rise of kind of open source investigative firms like a Bellingcat right. or, or others. And so, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And I think that that's something that's that's really critically important because this is a story that is, has been left, you know, a bit unanswered with a lot of politicization. And it's too serious to kind of, to, you know, leave it in that arena. I mean, we've got to get to the bottom of what happened. You know, for whatever it's worth, my kind of former colleagues and I all, kind of, you know, certainly believe this occurred and don't see any problem, in fact, with uh, differing assessments between low and medium confidence, because that happens all the time. Right. So let me ask you this, Mark. I mean, if you were a policymaker and not an intelligence officer, and you were sort of tasked with coming up with a coherent American strategy for whatever you want to call it, containing, deterring, working with Russia, what would be your sort of top five recommendations? So actually, I've been thinking about this. I'm going to write something on it soon. 
I'm, I'm going to steal a little bit from what NSA calls defend forward, but you got to think about, again, where I came from is the CIA, which is an external organization. We're outward leaning. So our job is always to be in the face of the enemy. And so when I say defend forward, I, you know, I, there's there's actually three parts of this that I was thinking about. You know, first is offensive cyber. It's been reported that we have, we have done this, and I think we have to continue to do this. And I know that we have to bolster our defenses. There's no doubt that Russians, you know, Russian cyber actors, whether they're government or private, have a, have a pretty easy time going after the United States. And so clearly, you know, we're making it too easy for them. But I want to see us take the offensive because that's the only thing that Vladimir Putin's going to understand. So it's going to be offensive cyber. We have to be willing to, to you know, impart some hurt on them. That's one. Mm-hmm. Number two is to do something that that we started at CIA, which was really, you know, we called it a call to arms. I mean, I remember talking about this and I've, you know, you know, the CIA actually cleared me to talk about this, which was kind of interesting. But this was the idea that, you know, after 2016, it's kind of like September 12th. So we have to go on the offense. But what does that mean, really? And, and what we were talking about is exposing kind of Russian malfeasance worldwide. One of the things that does have some effect, uh, particularly internationally, is when the Russians do something egregious to expose it. Now, whether that's Bellingcat doing so or the U.S., you know, working with our allies, but ultimately it's to expose Russian bad behavior. And I think that's really important. And we have to be on the offensive and do that. And the last part is bolstering our alliances. And I think you know, one of the great things about the this, you know, this non the, the summit that was kind of a yawn. But the biggest part of the summit was the trip to Europe beforehand. You know, we're meeting with the the G7 EU and NATO because this is really announcing that the U.S. U.S. is back as a transatlantic partner, and so you know, bolstering our alliances is critical. And and I, and I will just say that one of the things that that was certainly caught the Russians' attention pre-summit was the announcement by DOD of of you know of an aid package to the Ukrainian military. Yeah. That kind of stuff is really important. So when I say defend forward, it's, it's to go on the offense. And I think that's the only thing that, that the Russians are, are going to going to understand. Can we cooperate them on a limited basis on arms control? Sure. You know, the exchange of ambassadors. I mean, if, if you want to take that as a, as a win, okay. We actually never kicked out the Russian ambassador. And so, but ultimately nothing much is going to come of it. The idea of, you know, cyber working groups. I mean, you're, you're, you're inviting a criminal into the into the investigative body. I mean, that's absurd. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we are going to be faced with a a, a very activist Russia. And, and if anyone thinks that, we, you know, the, we material gain, gain really material anything after this summit, I think that's a little silly. On the point of, given that I'm in journalism, I'm very, very in, intrigued and enticed by this idea of just sort of maximum disclosure of misbehavior, right? Yep. So here's my, my concern, though. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I don't see it as a coincidence at whatever level this is being played, whether with American leadership, or simply the Europeans suddenly and forcefully deciding, at least the European security services deciding to get their shit together, that, you know, you had these disclosures coming out of the Czech Republic and Bulgaria within the space of the same week. Very embarrassing for the Russians that they're accused of acts of state terrorism on NATO EU soil. What worries me, though, is that, you know, much like a program which shall not be named that was run in Syria, you kind of turn the spigot on and then you see the result. And if it's you're, you're getting a little more bang for your buck, you turn the spigot back off. And I've talked to a lot of people who are covering the space, including uh, Roman Dobrokotov, who runs uh, The Insider in Russia, which is one of Bellingcat's partners, who said to me, he's like, I'm very worried that we're not seeing enough disclosure come to light. You know, so in, in other words, the FBI is sitting on its uh, lab findings about the two time poisoning of my colleague, Vladimir Karamaza. That hasn't come to light and they have the documents. The question is why? Like what? And, and, and as you know, in the intelligence game, and certainly when the policymakers get a hold of intelligence, they don't want to kind of give it all away at once. They, they sort of do it with a mind to seeing how the other side, the opposition is going to react. I think, I think, Michael, you are giving too much credit to some kind of uh, choreographed, <laughs> you know, maybe, yeah, messaging. 
look, that's that's not the way I see it. Only in the sense of the intelligence community is in the U.S. government. I mean, you know, the you know the State Department has the Global Engagement Center, and so you know we're tasked with exposing Russian malfeasance. You know, this is not making anything up. And so, you know, the idea that we turn something on and off, that really doesn't happen, just to be honest. This is not a covert action program. It's not covert influence. It's just basically working with our, when we find something out in the U.S. government, we're going to tell our allies. You know, it's, it's just put in motion because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's, just, it's nothing nefarious because the Russians are doing it. It's not a covert action program. It's not making something up about, you know, one of the great things about working Russia is you don't have to make anything up. Right. <laughs> Talk about, you know, their bad behavior. They just do it so often. You know, that's why I think that the idea of, of you know, turning the spigot on or off. I mean, if there's certain things that the bureaus doesn't want to have come out, I, I don't know about that. But this is more of kind of on, on Russian misbehavior, you know, overseas kind of globally. And and whether it's exposing their election interference in Europe or, of course, the political assassinations, they seem to certainly, you know, want to cooperate because they keep doing it. Yeah. You know, to have a former CIA officer come out and say uh, maximum or total transparency is is a rare and good thing, I would say, <laughs> at least. In- no, but, you know, this this works. I mean, when you think about it, you know, it's telling the truth. So that's why, you know, just to, to you know, talk about Russian misbehavior is a, is, is a good thing. Look, and I, and I think what, what makes it more interesting now, as opposed to during the Cold War, is that just it, with social media, I mean, there's there's explosion in, in data and the ability to disseminate messages. And so it's much easier, you know, that you don't, you know, old Cold War stuff like this was, you know, you had to worry about dissemination mechanisms. Now it's just, hey, the Russians did something stupid. Let's talk about it a little bit. And so that's nothing nefarious, sneaky or anything like that. That's just telling the truth. Well, listen, Mark, I'm run out of questions for you. If, if there's any kind of uh, parting tips on leadership you'd like to uh, relay to the audience here, <laughs> sure. all five of my listeners who, who might one day ascend to a position of leadership, by all means, I, I'd love to hear it. So, you know, look, I, the, the book is Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons in the CIA. It's, you can find it on Amazon. It's clarity, clarityincrisisbook.com is the, is the book landing page. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, what I talk about on all the leadership principles, I tell some, you know, really kind of poignant operational stories. And I think that that's what makes the book special is that, that, you know, I'm going to talk about something, but I'll tell you about, you know, certain times where, uh, you know, I, I put this into, into principle and I'll, I'll leave you with one story. You know, it's a principle I call family values, which is, you know, it's certainly kind of, you know, a, a common, a common that's a fraud concept. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's a common phrase, but, but ultimately I, I talk about, you know, if you want men and women to, you know, to follow you into battle, they really have to believe in you and each other. And so you have to foster that feeling of, uh, you know, brotherhood or sisterhood. And I give some examples of this, but, uh, uh, you know, I'll I'll leave you with this. You know, my, my, when I was in Afghanistan as a base chief in Eastern Afghanistan, my mom passed away in 2012. And, and, you know, I was 6,000 miles away. I had to get home as multiple helicopter trips and then fixed wing. And so as, as one of the helicopter hops from, you know, our remote base on the border with Pakistan to kind of a, a bigger base, we had terrible weather. We're kind of socked in. We're actually, you know, in the air in a helicopter. There's there, you know, we have some amazing pilots. These are veterans of, you know, Task Force 160 of, of you know, U.S. military special operations. And I'm on comms with them. And I'm like, I'm like, just let's get let's get out of here. Let's go home. It's not safe. And but they waited and the, and the weather passed. And as we landed, I went to him and I said, you know, that was that was a little risky, guys. Like, you know, what are you doing? And and one of the pilots, you know, is of course in this, you know, typical Southern drawl, basically said, said, you know, hey, look, chief, you know, your mom died and, and we're getting you home. And that's what we do. And I had tears in my eyes after that, because that's the kind of people that I worked with at CIA. So as you build units, you know, in whatever you do, whatever profession, 
you know, if you can have that sense of kind of love and camaraderie, you know, when times are really tough, when you have that situation down the line with, you know, lack of, of situational awareness at times ambiguity, you know, those kind of close units really, you know, really shine. And so I, I love that example. I have a whole bunch of others like that, but I think people will really, you know, really uh, understand it, kind of reflect on it. It'll resonate uh, with, the, with the readers. And it, it forges lifelong friendships and right. almost filial relations with the people you serve with too. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I strongly agreed with, with Pete Buttigieg is that, you know, the United States ought to have a kind of compulsory civil service requirement. Right. You know, I'm not talking about bringing back, uh, you know, compulsory military service, but, you know, did the idea of, of being in the public sphere, uh, at least for a year where you can sort of learn the responsibilities that, that are entailed there from and, and make the kind of lasting friendships and associations that will serve you in good stead for the re- remainder of your life. That is something I feel that's lacking in our culture and in our society, Yeah, uh, but it's present elsewhere. So no, you're, you're hundred percent right. Look, I don't know the, the sense of public service. You know, I, I walk taller. I'm very proud of what I did, but you don't have to join the CIA. You can do anything. I mean, you know, I mean, you can become a cop, you can be a paramedic, you can work in a homeless shelter, but the idea of doing something for the greater good, I think is something and that people had that, even if it's mandatory for a year after college or before college, you know, as countries in Europe uh, do, I think that fosters a sense of community. And look at the United States, how divided it is. So the great thing about doing that is you would force people together who would not necessarily uh, be in that position. And, and with a country so, you know, incredibly divided, maybe that's a, uh, that's a way to bridge that gap. Yeah. Well, Mark, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I'm sure you and I will talk again uh, whilst you're on book tour. And we should have you back on um, either upon publication of the next book and bestseller, or just to continue to rap about uh, the things that interest the two of us. Sure, absolutely. So thanks again. And the book again, Clarity in Crisis, can be purchased in fine bookstores and online pretty much anywhere. Uh, my guest this week was Mark Polymeropoulos, former CIA officer. You've been listening to Foreign Office. Thank you very much.